Hosea chapter 11, we begin in verse 1. When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. As they called them, so they went from them. They sacrificed unto Balaam and burned incense to graven images. I taught Ephraim also to go, taking them by their arms, but they knew not that I healed them. I drew them with cords of a man with bands of love, and I was to them as they that take off the yoke on their jaws, and I laid meat unto them. He shall not return into the land of Egypt, but the Assyrian shall be his king, because they refuse to return. And the sword shall abide on his cities and shall consume his branches and devour them because of their own counsels. And my people are bent to backsliding from me. Though they called them to the Most High, none at all would exalt him. How shall I give thee up, Ephraim? How shall I deliver thee, Israel? How shall I make thee as Adma? How shall I set thee as Zeboim? Mine heart is turned within me. My repentings are kindled together. I will not execute the fierceness of mine anger. I will not return to destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not man, the Holy One in the midst of thee. And I will not enter into the city. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 9 trusting that the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. I want to call your attention in particular to the last two verses that we just read, verses 8 and 9. How shall I give thee up, Ephraim? How shall I deliver thee, Israel? How shall I make thee as Adma? How shall I set thee as Zeboim? Mine heart is turned within me. My repentings are kindled together. I will not execute the fierceness of mine anger. I will not return to destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not man, the Holy One in the midst of thee. And I will not enter into the city. How shall I give thee up, Ephraim? This is the Lord speaking now. And it's as if he's speaking to himself, isn't he? How shall I give thee up, Ephraim? How shall I deliver thee, Israel? And the idea of deliverance here is deliver you to the judgment that you are so worthy to receive. How will I do it? How can I do it? You know, the pain of a failed marriage runs very deep. Hosea knew this. His wife Gomer is described as a wife of whoredoms in chapter 1. Commentators point out that Hosea's first son, Jezreel, was actually born to him, or in other words, he was the father of the child. Notice, however, the words of verse 3 in chapter 1. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Deblaim, which conceived and bare him a son. Bear him a son, we notice. 
That's the only instance in the chapter where we read that she bare him a son. In the verses that follow, that speak of the birth of Lo-Ruhama and Lo-Ami, it simply says that she bare a daughter and that she bare a son, but not that she bare them to him. There is no mention of her bearing Hosea a daughter or a son the way it is stated that uh, with the birth of Jezreel she bare him a son. And taking into account then the character of Hosea's wife, Gomer, and the meaning of the names that are assigned to her second and third child, Lo-Rahama meaning no mercy and Lo-Ami meaning not my people, it is generally recognized that these last two children were not born to Hosea, or in other words, he was not their father. The first three chapters in Hosea form a section of their own. They stand in marked contrast to the rest of the book, and they can be viewed as a prologue to the rest of the book. His marriage to an unfaithful wife And the illegitimate children that are born, you see, are used by God in symbolic fashion to symbolize God's own relationship to his adulterous people and their unfaithfulness to him. J. Sidlow Baxter gives an excellent and clear explanation of these first three chapters of Hosea. He writes, the symbolic narrative of Hosea's marriage tragedy in the first three chapters is forefixed because all that follows is in the Lord's controversy, and he's referencing chapter 4 and verse 1, where the Lord says he has a controversy with his people. The first three chapters lead up to that statement. The Lord's controversy is meant to be interpreted then in the light of those first three chapters. What then is the special relevance of this prologue? It is this. The prophet, through the heartbreak of his own marriage tragedy, had come to see Israel's sin against God in its deepest and most awful significance. Hosea had loved with a pure, deep, tender, sensitive love. He had honorably taken to himself the woman of his choice and entered into what he anticipated would be a union of lifelong happiness. After the birth of the first child, however, painful suspicions were aroused in his mind as to Gomer's loyalty, and these were confirmed later by the discovery of adultery. Now, in such circumstances, there was certainly allowance for divorce in Old Testament times, just as there are in New Testament times. The Westminster Divines recognized that and addressed that issue in our confession. But the Lord tells Hosea to do something else. 
chapter 3 and verse 1. Then said the Lord unto me, Go yet, love a woman beloved of her friend, yet an adulteress, according to the love of the Lord toward the children of Israel, who looked to other gods and left flagons of wine. So I bought her to me for 15 pieces of silver. You get the picture here. It is apparent that his wife sold herself into slavery. And he goes and buys her back, and for an homer of barley and an half homer of barley. J. Sidlow Baxter continues, The deepest and most awesome thing of all in these chapters is that through his own cruelly desecrated relationship with Gomer, Hosea came to understand the true meaning of Israel's sin. It was spiritual adultery and even harlotry. As Hosea tells them, God had taken them to himself in a special relationship, had loved them, carried them in his arms, taught them to walk, as it were, been husband and home to them, and they had gone after other gods and had prostituted their high privileges to the lascivious indulgence of idolatry. Such sin, then, is spiritual adultery, and to see it in this light is to see it in its ugliest enormity and at the same time to realize with a cutting keenness the suffering that it brings to the heart of God. And that's especially what I want you to see this morning. The suffering which this kind of spiritual adultery causes to the heart of God. Hosea is the prophet of outraged but persevering love. Here is the love that suffers long and is kind. Here is the love that never lets us go and never gives us up. Here is the love that many waters cannot quench. Sounded, outraged, grieved, disappointed love, which although it flames and flashes with white-hot indignation at sin sobs out in the words of our text, How shall I give thee up, Ephraim? How shall I deliver thee, Israel? Well, that's what I want to focus on this morning. This outraged but persevering love of God. I've given the message a title today. My title is my theme, and it's simply this. The conflicted emotions of God. The conflicted emotions of God. Listen again to the words of the text. I believe that these words are meant to be felt in our hearts as much as they are to be understood in our minds. When the Lord asks the question, How shall I give thee up, Ephraim? How shall I deliver thee, Israel? Well, let's think first of all this morning on the contributing factors to this emotional conflict. The contributing factors, okay? And the obvious major factor to this emotional conflict in the heart of God is sin. The sin of his people. We learn from the very first verse in the book of Hosea that his ministry lasted through the reigns of a number of kings, Uzziah, Jotham, 
Ahaz and Hezekiah in the southern kingdom, and Jeroboam II in the northern kingdom. Now the fact that Hosea's ministry began then in the days of Uzziah and in the days of Jeroboam II, and that that, uh, his ministry lasted through the days of Hezekiah, means that Hosea would have been on hand to see the northern kingdom deteriorate right up until they were taken into captivity by the Assyrians. You could say that Hosea was to the northern kingdom what Jeremiah was to the southern kingdom. He was on hand to see it. He was there. He saw the nation deteriorate, and then he saw the captivity come by the Assyrians. After Jeroboam II, you find one king after another in the northern kingdom seizing the throne by murder and conspiracy. Shalem slays Zechariah after only half a year's reign. Menahem slays Shalem after a reign of one month. Pekah kills Pekahiah, the son of Menahem, while Hoshea, the last of them, in turn slays Pekah. You kind of get the idea that it's a crude form of king of the mountain. One man pulling the other man off through conspiracy and murder. And that's the state of the nation. You might well imagine the strifes and the outbreaks of anarchy, conditions that could only be described as deplorable, lawless conditions with little or no respect for the throne. Things had grown even worse morally and spiritually than they were politically, and in such a setting of spiritual and moral declension, we're able to list a number of sins that Hosea calls out specifically and denounces. Swearing and lying and killing and stealing. Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Hear the word of the Lord, ye children of Israel, for the Lord hath a controversy with the inhabitants of the land, because there is no truth, nor mercy, nor knowledge of God in the land, by swearing and lying and killing and stealing and committing adultery, they break out, and blood toucheth blood. You could add to the list rebellion and murder and bloodshed, Chapter 5 and verse 2, And the revolters are profound to make slaughter, though I have been a rebuker of them all. Chapter 6 and verse 2, Gilead is a city of them that work iniquity and is polluted with blood. Robber gangs and murder gangs made up of priests. Chapter 6, verse 9, And as troops of robbers wait for a man, so the company of priests murder in the way by consent, for they commit lewdness. Chapter 7, verse 1, When I would have healed Israel, then the iniquity of Ephraim was discovered, and the wickedness of Samaria, for they commit falsehood, and the thief cometh in, and the troop of robbers spoileth without. This is but a sampling of the references in which Hosea calls out sin. We could add more reference to the list, but I think you get the picture. There was widespread adultery, perversion, false dealings, 
oppression, idolatry, drunkenness, utter heedlessness of God. This was the sorry state to which Israel had sunk leading up to the days of its captivity. You would think that the prophet would simply announce the judgment of God and leave it at that. Judgment would come and that would be the end of the story. And God could not be blamed. After all, his character stands in absolute contrast to all these descriptive phrases that are used to describe the deplorable condition of Israel. The words of Habakkuk come to mind, where he says in Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 3, with regard to God, thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. You read a text like that and you wonder, surely God must be done then with Israel. When you look at how they're described and when you look at God's purity, how could there be anything but judgment to those in such a condition? Now it's easy for us to look back in utter astonishment at the nation of Israel, especially when we read the accounts of their deliverance from Egypt and their experience at Mount Sinai and their conquering of the promised land in the days of Joshua and the building of the temple in the time of Solomon and so on and so forth. How can a nation so blessed fall so far and push the long-suffering of God to such a limit? We should keep in mind, however, that when we look back at Israel's history in utter astonishment, how much more should we look at our own time in utter astonishment? We have so much more than what they had in Old Testament times in terms of revelation and our knowledge of God and our knowledge of the gospel, and yet don't we find ourselves in the same condition? Certainly on a national level, you'd have to say so. And on a personal level, well, maybe more than we care to admit. So sin plays a major role in this emotional conflict that we find in God. But if sin was the only factor, there really wouldn't be an emotional conflict in the heart of God. God would simply move in power and might to squash the rebellion against him, and that would be the end of the story. The thing that creates the conflict, however, is God's love and mercy. And this is what's coming across so clearly in our text. God is torn by the notion of judging Ephraim. How shall I give thee up, Ephraim? How shall I deliver thee, Israel? How shall I make thee as Adma? How shall I set thee as Zeboim? My heart is turned within me. My repentings are kindled together. Now, we might note here by way of explanation these two places that are mentioned, Adma and Zeboim. These were cities in the plain, the same plain where the Lord rained fire and brimstone upon Sodom and Gomorrah. These cities were actually destroyed there as well. You discovered that in Deuteronomy chapter 29. 
So Israel had become worthy of the same judgment. The same judgment as Sodom and Gomorrah. But God is asking himself, how can he do this? Even though Israel was worthy of such judgment, the thought of giving them what they deserved was heartrending to God. This is, after all, the nation that God himself started with Abraham. They were his chosen people. He had been with them throughout their history and had provided for them and had protected them. Must he now judge them? I've said it on numerous occasions in the past that when the Lord set his heart and mind toward the sinner's salvation, he faced a challenge, a challenge to his wisdom. A challenge to his heart, you could say. In a sense, you could say that the, ver the very attributes of God were conflicted within him. How can love for the sinner be reconciled with justice due the sinner? How could holiness be reconciled with man's sinfulness? There's a verse in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 18 that reads, and if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? That word scarcely can be a little bit misleading, I suppose, in its King James usage. It, you get the impression on the surface of it that we barely make it. If the righteous are scarcely saved, if they barely make it across the finish line, so to speak, well, what does that say then about the ungodly and the sinner? But in fact, the word scarcely in 1 Peter 4.18 uh, could be translated by the phrase with difficulty. If the righteous with difficulty be saved, and if the righteous with difficulty be saved, then you and I know something a little bit now when it comes to salvation. It comes to us fully and freely, and nothing is required of us but to believe it. There's a sense, I think, in which you could say from that perspective that where we're concerned, salvation is fairly easy for us. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Don't ever forget, though, that it was not that easy for God. If salvation was to be accomplished, then it had to come about in such a way that this emotional conflict that our text reveals needed to be resolved. And this leads to my next point, then. We've seen the factors that contribute to the conflict, our sin and God's judgment, along with God's love and grace and mercy. Those things kind of come at loggerheads against each other. That's the conflict, the emotional conflict of God's heart. Let's think next, then, on the resolution of the conflict. And we really need to go beyond the book of Hosea to find the resolution of the conflict. In each book of the Bible, as it's found in 
the King James Study Bible. There's a section in each introduction to each book that says the contribution, in this case, of Hosea, the contribution of Hosea to redemptive revelation. And what the editor means under that category is, how does the theme of this book, how does Hosea contribute to our understanding of salvation, redemptive revelation? The editors of the King James Study Bible recognize that although the books of the Bible are different, written at different times and by different kinds of people, they are nevertheless tied together by a common theme, that theme being Christ. Christ himself calls on us to search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they that testify of me. That's in John's Gospel, chapter 5. You should highlight, underline that verse. Keep that ever in mind. Let that be your guide as you read the Bible. The scriptures testify of Christ. Of course, Luke 24 will bring out the same truth to you. The scriptures speak of Christ. So when it comes to this resolution of the emotional conflict in the heart of God, we may note from our text that there is a clear statement in verse 9 to indicate that the conflict would be resolved. Look at what verse 9 says. I will not execute the fierceness of mine anger. I will not return to destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not man, the Holy One in the midst of thee, and I will not enter into the city. The idea being entering into the city to destroy it. Now, if you were to view the book of Hosea as an entity all its own, apart from the rest of Scripture, you might get the impression, and I've actually read some commentaries that approach it this way, you might get the impression that God simply resolves the emotional conflict that's expressed in our text by arbitrarily making a decision, deciding that grace will prevail rather than justice, or that love will win instead of justice. Like he'll just have the choice to make between the two, so he chooses love instead of justice. We know in the depths of our hearts that God would not, indeed could not, arbitrarily simply make that kind of decision. I've cited Romans chapter 1 on numerous occasions to show you that even though Christ-rejecting sinners ever strive to suppress the knowledge of God, that knowledge is nevertheless stamped on their hearts. They know God, at least in some capacity. Which means, doesn't it, that ultimately every atheist uh, in his heart is really a liar. No such thing. I think I told you about the preacher I heard as a student in chapel at BJ, who was telling the audience, the students, that he had a friend who issued lie detector tests, 
And whenever this man asked the question, when somebody was taking the lie detector test, do you believe in God? Nobody could answer that question, no, without having it register as a lie. Rather interesting, isn't it? For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power in Godhead, so that they are without excuse. They know God. There won't be anyone who can stand before him on judgment day and say, God, I I had no clue you even existed. Um, Won't happen. Now, toward the end of Romans 1, Paul further describes sinful man, not only in terms of his sin, but in terms of something else that he knows, in addition to knowing the truth of God's existence. This is in Romans 1, beginning in verse 30, where Paul is carrying on his description of sinful man. They are backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud boasters inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, and then underscore this next part, who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them, underscore the phrase, who knowing the judgment of God... They know. They know intuitively. Don't expect them to admit it, but based on God's word, we know that they know intuitively the judgment of God, and that sin calls for judgment. You could say they know in their hearts what Abraham in Genesis 18 and verse 25 expresses in words when he says, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Well, Abraham knows that he will. So does every child of Adam. He knows that the judge of all the earth will do right. So this takes us back to our text then and the emotional conflict in the heart of God. God clearly expresses his desire not to judge Ephraim. How shall I give thee up, Ephraim? How shall I deliver thee, Israel? How shall I make thee as Adma? How shall I set thee as Zeboim? My heart is turned within me. My repentings are kindled together. Can God simply make the decision that he'll forego judgment because he takes no pleasure in it? I'm reminded of another passage in Scripture where the Lord shows his glory to Moses by passing by him and declaring his name. That passage is found in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. This is a passage you should highlight in your Bible and commit it to memory, especially if you're contemplating the attributes of God. We read in those verses, And the Lord passed by before him, that is Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord... The Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation." 
Note how the Lord maintains the consistency of his glory when he says, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. But then note what he says immediately after, and that will by no means clear the guilty. He's merciful and gracious, but he will not clear the guilty. That almost seems to be contradictory on the surface of it, doesn't it? And the question this should raise in your mind is, how can God be merciful and gracious, but yet by no means clear the guilty? If man is guilty, he can't be cleared. So how can God be merciful and gracious? And this is why I say that the overall teaching of the Bible must be brought to bear on any single passage of the Bible. The reason that God can be merciful and gracious and still be just by not clearing the guilty is the same reason that God can declare in our text, this is chapter 11 and verse 9, I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not return to destroy Ephraim. And then there follows a statement where God sets himself apart from man and apart from man's ways or man's wisdom when he says, For I am God and not man. O sentimental man may decide to forfeit justice and let mercy or his love prevail. Aren't you thankful that God is not like man? He's God. And because he is God, he is able to refrain from judgment and be gracious without compromising his character. One of the most amazing statements I find in all of Scripture is found in Romans chapter 3 and verse 26. If I was a critic of the Bible in search of contradictions, and there are many people, you know, that search the Bible looking for those very things. Uh, they're looking to turn the Bible on its head. I remember the summer I was saved. I was in a Drummond Bugle Corps. We went on long bus trips. And uh, me and a good friend of mine at the time were reading our Bibles now on those bus trips because I had just gained a saving interest in the Lord. And there were others that saw what we were doing. And so they dug up Bibles too and began to read them, but they were doing so in order to prove me and my friend wrong in search of contradictions. You know, the best advice you can give to a person who may be approaching the Bible that way is to say to him, keep reading. You may get it eventually. Keep reading. But if I wanted to put myself now in the shoes of those critics, I would go to Romans chapter 3 and verse 26 and say, how do you explain this? To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness that he, God or Christ, might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. How can he be just and the justifier of those that have broken his law. How can he justify them and be just in the process? Oh, I've just found you a major contradiction in the scripture. 
so the critic might say. But the reason God can be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus is given to us in the preceding verse. This is Romans 3 and verse 25 now, speaking with reference to Christ, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. This statement gives us the basis for God being able to say in Hosea 11 and verse 9, I will not execute the fierceness of mine anger. I will not return to destroy Ephraim. In fact, God would execute the fierceness of his anger, but he would not exercise it toward Ephraim, nor will he exercise it toward you or toward me, because he has exercised it already toward his only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the meaning of Christ being the propitiation for our sins. He's borne the wrath. He's borne the fierce anger. So Ephraim would be chastised, to be sure. But Ephraim would not be unloved, nor would justice be compromised. That's the genius of God's wisdom when it comes to our salvation. That God can be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. So we've seen the contributing factors to this emotional conflict and how that conflict is resolved by God. It remains for us then to see, finally and briefly, the impact that all this should have on us. The impact that this should have on us. When we look at the words of our text, Okay, how shall I give thee up, Ephraim? How shall I deliver thee, Israel? Verse 9, I will not execute the fierceness of mine anger. I will not return to destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in the midst of thee. When we look at such statements and we see them in the overall teaching of the, go- of the gospel, that should have an impact on how you view sin. Don't take it casually. Oh, we have such a tendency to do that, don't we? And to turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. This sin is no big deal. I'll be forgiven. Christ bore the penalty from it. I don't need to give it a thought. I believe one of the reasons that this book in Hosea is given to us, and especially uh, the first three chapters given to us as a prologue to show us, remind us of the terrible heartbreak of a failed marriage. I believe that the purpose behind that is that we might know and appreciate the impact that sin has on God. It provokes his anger and it breaks his heart. And you know, if we know that and we appreciate that, we will not take sin casually. It provokes his anger and it breaks his heart. Thank God that there is a solution. And that has an impact on us too. 
It should have an impact then, all of what we've considered in this study so far. It should impact our view of sin. I don't want to break God's heart. And I don't want to do things that I know would provoke his anger. I don't want to do the things that brought the fierceness of his wrath upon my Savior. I just don't want to do that. And not only so, you won't have a heart for doing that if you're a true Christian. But also, okay, so it has an impact on our view of sin. It also has an impact on our sense of assurance. God has found the way in his wisdom to resolve the conflict. Sin provokes him. Sin breaks his heart. Justice must be ministered. Justice has been ministered. The reason Paul can write, there is therefore now no condemnation, is because there's already been condemnation, the condemnation that came upon Christ. Which means then, that you can be sure that God's love is steadfast and sure, and that you'll never lose it. His dealings with you at times may be harsh. They would be harsh to Ephraim. But his love is never forfeited. His love never can be forfeited. He loved us so much, enough to give us his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So draw that lesson from the resolution of the conflict. God's love is steadfast and sure, and it will never fail, and it will never end. And if you know that and appreciate that, then added to your sense of not wanting to break God's heart, you will also, on the positive side of the coin, will want to walk in the ways that are pleasing to him. I owe him everything. He's rescued me from the hell I deserve. He's borne my condemnation for me. How can you not know that and appreciate that without saying, I owe him everything. And so I will walk humbly with him. And I will thank him and praise him and seek his help in enabling me to walk in the ways that are pleasing to him and in conquering sin and avoiding sin as best I can with his help. Oh, this is a a powerful book, this book of Hosea, especially when you understand it in light of that opening three-chapter prologue. May God stamp the lessons on our heart then. Let's close in prayer. Oh, Lord, as we bow in thy presence now and bring this meeting to a close, We thank thee that resolution has been found to the conflict that existed in the heart of God, that put justice at odds with grace and mercy. We thank thee, Lord, that they're reconciled to each other, that God can be faithful and just and gracious and merciful on account of what Jesus Christ has done. We pray, O Lord, that thy word would shape our attitude towards sin. 
Forgive us, O Lord, for taking it so lightly. Forgive us, O Lord, for thinking that God is as indifferent to it as we are at times. We know that our sins cost thee the lifeblood of thy Son. O Lord, we pray that thou wilt strengthen our resolve to overcome our besetting sins. And we thank thee, Lord, that as we strive to do so, we can strive in the assurance that thy love is constant and sure. So, Lord, hear our prayers and take our thanks. And may the Spirit of God continue to minister to each and every heart, even after the service ends. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.